This is Isaka's Page to Podcast. Thanks everyone for joining us today. I'm Safia Kazi, Privacy Professional Practices Principal at Isaka. Joining me today to talk about his recently released Isaka Journal article, Cyber Business Recovery, is Executive Principal for Risk Masters International, Stephen Ross. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. So for the purposes of this discussion that we're having, can you tell us what, in your opinion, constitutes a cyber event? Ooh, I, I would even go, f- I'd rather use the term cybersecurity event. Uh, but having said that, it can range from everything from the the loss of, of, of information. Usually it's personal information, but could be trade secrets, could be intellectual property to the other extreme, total destruction of information resources, in particular, of course, the data. We have kind of gotten focused on ransomware as the, the ultimate uh, bad thing that can happen. But I think we have to see that the possibility exists in a world at war that the bad guys may attack and not just simply encrypt the data and ask for money to give it back, but rather encrypt the data or just destroy the data and not give it back. And what are the main takeaways from the NIST cybersecurity framework on cybersecurity event recovery? Well, from the framework itself, it was, it's pretty scant. It says there's three things you need to do. You need to have a plan, you need to keep it up to date, and you need to communicate. Yeah, I mean, certainly good advice, but not not a lot that's actionable. To be fair to NIST, I don't know why I need to be fair to NIST, they're doing pretty well without me. There is a, uh, a guide that they published that explains the whole recovery process in greater detail. It certainly is, is a step in the right direction. I do find that it's, it's somewhat limited in, in its specifics. In fact, they say that it's not meant to be a playbook. And Ultimately, I think organizations do need a playbook and they need the guidance on how to construct that. But at least to that extent, the, the, the NIST guidance is even, keep in mind what NIST is, it, it, it makes standards for the U.S. government. But the U, in the U.S., it's considered to be a nationwide standard. And I've learned in my travels around the world that in many other areas that I've visited, that it's being viewed as the as the benchmark for what should be done as well. And how might the nature of an attack impact the way that the recovery process needs to look? Well, as I say, I think it, it really depends a great deal on how impactful it is to the operations of an organization while the the event is occurring. If it means simply that the bad guys have obtained a lot of information about your employees or your customers. This is a bad thing, but you're, once once you close that drain, it's possible to continue in operations as though it hadn't happened. I mean, the bad news, of course, is that the, that information is gone, but it's gone regardless. The other extreme where operations are, IT operations are brought to a halt that's a different, a different impact for so many organizations, I would say almost every organization, that depends on information technology in order to do its business. 
different different aspects of technology for different industries and different companies, but it's everything from the system that that runs your manufacturing processes to your financial processes to paying your people. There's no uh, single aspect of that, which is why each organization needs to have its own plan as to what it would do in the event of an attack and attacks of of different sorts, particularly focused on anything that would disrupt normal business operations. And so what parts of the enterprise need to be involved when it comes to cybersecurity-related business continuity planning? Everybody but the janitor and maybe the janitor on a good day. <laughs> um, seriously, it you know, it, the obvious, it requires IT involvement. It requires business continuity involvement. It requires security involvement. We, we, we knew that. But then it requires financial management. It requires human resources management. It requires each aspect of the organization that plays a critical role in its ability to do business, either the, the core business itself or the ancillary services that, that enable it to work, like paying people and paying vendors and keeping the books. And then finally, executive management to tie all those pieces together. So I think one of the things that we sometimes see in organizations is a lack of transparency, specifically because sometimes people who are high ranking in security might get fired or be afraid of getting fired because of some kind of security incident. So do you have any ideas for people who are working in security to emphasize that, no, they could potentially do everything right, but incidents could still happen and therefore their job security shouldn't be based on has an incident happened or not? Well, I, I've long felt that measuring the quality of information security based on the on the ability of criminals is not a an appropriate way to run a business. The fact that something happened despite all the protections put in place merely says that any one organization is not as well prepared to defend itself as major criminal and governmental organizations are prepared to attack. Uh, I think it's a very unfortunate way to look at it. And, and it, frankly, in my experience, I don't see a lot of security professionals getting fired because, because the bad guys slip one through. The other side of that equation, though, is recognition that when something happens, nobody is in a better position to help recover than the security people who know the technology the best. And the security people and the other information technology professionals in the organization. Yeah, now if I could read from your article, uh, one thing you said was, though it may be tough to explain networks, operating systems, middleware, and interfaces to business people, the effort must be made. I think a lot of people who are more technical oriented have some trouble explaining these really complex technical topics to people who may not be as technical. And like you mentioned earlier, everybody kind of needs to be involved with this. So do you have any tips for people who might be listening who are very technical but struggle to explain some of these concepts to people who don't have that knowledge? Sure. Go home, explain your job to your husband, wife, children, dog, secretary, whoever it is that, you know, would be a, a surrogate for the business people. And if you can explain it well enough at home, you can explain it in the office. 
this this concept that the technology is is too too arcane for you mere mortals, you mere little people. I, I don't buy it. I've never bought it. It has been, quite frankly, the cornerstone of my career has been that I understand what the techies are saying and I understand what the business people are saying and I can I can kind of translate between the two. Yeah, I know in previous episodes, I'm talking years ago, you and I talked about how your background is more of that history background. Um, right. And I think I think it's really interesting because when we look at, you know, our state of cybersecurity report, we saw that there's just a lack of qualified professionals, but maybe we need to change the idea of what qualified is. Um, do you see that organizations are looking more toward finding people with diverse backgrounds and it doesn't necessarily have to be people? You're not seeing no. that? No, not at all. We hire We hire security people for their technical skills and we fire them for their communication skills. It's it's silly, uh, you know. Obviously, whoever's going to be doing this work needs to be able to understand the technology and guide the technology, from you know needs needs identification all the way to uh, implementation and and maintenance. That said, the idea that again that this is a a priesthood that only the initiated can begin to understand and work with, I've never bought it. It doesn't make sense to me. I've, in, in all the years that I've been in technology, I've always thought of myself as a business person. In all the years I've been in business, I've always thought of myself as a technician. I don't understand the difference. I don't understand the distinction. And I think that distinction is harmful. I, I definitely do. And I will add, there's organizations like ISACA who exist in order to bridge that gap. Absolutely. Now, with how quickly things are changing in organizations and technology, how often would you recommend organizations take a look at their business continuity plans to see if they need to be updated? Well, I, I would generalize on that and say that you, you need to do an annual inspection. That's why we do testing, obviously. But when we're talking about a business continuity plan for a technical event, that is to say a cybersecurity event, I think that there needs to be much more frequent inspection, particularly because there's known, you know, known threats out there. Log4j comes along, everybody goes crazy. Uh, what, what's the latest one, uh, you know, Every week there's a new one. Why should I have to worry about which, which, what this week's is? Um, the, the fact that, that the bad guys are, are as inventive as they are, and the fact in particular that we are now living in a world at war, uh, certainly raises the stakes and, and requires much more frequent evaluation of the quality of what's being done. And so your article wraps up by talking about this idea of practical imagination. Can you explain that concept and how it relates to what we've been discussing so far? Well, you know, scenario planning is not new with me. And the ability to, to see what might happen is not exactly uh, a, a unique uh, consideration by Stephen Ross. On the other hand, 
there's an infinite number of things that can happen. So it is part of the of the job, I believe, of the information security professionals and business continuity professionals and other related, you know, risk managers, other other related portions of what I call the control community in any organization, to to say of the potential set of all the things that can happen, what are some of the more realistic potential things that might happen? And then try to build plans that generalize around those, keeping in mind that the thing that you plan for is not the thing that's going to happen. And that sounds silly, but it's true that if, if you could anticipate the disaster, you would prevent it from happening in the first place. Therefore, disasters of any sort never work out quite exactly the way you thought they would. And that's not bad because if you're prepared to deal with that kind of disaster generally, then you'll have the, the wherewithal to address the specifics of that case. If you're only prepared to deal with theft of information, for example, then a, an attack on the integrity of your data is, is going to leave you with your hands up in the air and saying, my God, what do I do now? And I, I think that's the practicality of the imagination to be able to imagine what would happen in a way that, that you can deal with it when the time comes. And so all things considered, in your opinion, have companies improved their recovery capabilities in recent years as the threat landscape has changed? Or is this still an area that needs quite a bit of work? Well, it, it's a two-part question. Overall, business continuity has come a long, long way. It's far more professionalized than it was even as little as five years ago. The uh, attention and the expertise to deal with cyber threats specifically, no, this is, this is a wake-up call. And there's been too many, uh, too many organizations that have found themselves... Uh, you know, flat on their backs or other pieces of the anatomy, that it's it's now coming uh, to to the forefront. Uh, you know, the week before I attended ISACA's national conference here in North America, international conference in North America, um, I attended one in the business continuity space, and oh, I would say a good third of the sessions were around technical. You know, what do we do if there's a cyber attack? What do we do if there's ransomware? What do we do if, if the systems go down? So that, that, that is, a, the wake-up call has been heard. To that much, I, I think it's, it's a good thing. Yeah, and then before we wrap up, is there anything else about recovery that you want to talk about that we haven't had a chance to mention yet or anything from your article you wanted to share here? Yeah, yeah, there is. I think one of the things that, that needs to be understood largely by ISACA membership types, but also more broadly by organization executives, is that the system of internal controls is not simply making sure that the, the books and records come out correct. That's important. I'm not downplaying the importance of accurate record keeping. But the system of internal control is the way that organizations make sure that they're doing the things that management wants them to do. 
and the concept that when we take IT systems out of that equation, when we say, well, we have a system of internal controls and it's based largely on information systems, but if those information systems go down, well, we'll just keep doing what we always did. No, no, actually you won't. You're gonna to have to think about a system of internal control that pervades the organization during the time that the systems are unavailable or unreliable that at least satisfies the basic needs of the organization once you come back. And the idea that you're going to be able to do that on the fly when the time comes, and I can't tell you how many organizations I've dealt with whose cyber event recovery plan consists of, we'll figure it out when the time comes. It's just laughable. It's, it's not going to happen. So that's, that is something I definitely want to communicate. All right. Well, it looks like that is all we have time for, but thank you so much for chatting with us today. Okay. My pleasure again. Now, if you're interested in more insights on this or in reading Stephen's full Isaka Journal article, be sure to click the link in the description. I'm Safia Kazi, and thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Page to Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 